0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. I'm Mike Hussein, and I'm here with Mikul Panya, the editor in chief of Knowledge at Wharton. And we're going to be speaking with Beth Comstock, who has a new book out. It's got a great title Imagine It Forward Courage, Creativity, and the Power of Change. And Beth had many senior roles at General Electric uh, before she uh, then wrote this book, including Vice Chair of the Board of Directors. So, Beth, great to have you here today.
1: Thanks. Great to be here. Thank you.
0: Going to begin on maybe a more personal note here. Uh, just get us going on why you came into GE. What, what attracted you? And then far side of that. Uh, I think you had an offer from one Steve Jobs to leave GE. And why did you take a pass on that? Yeah. So let's go into GE. and then... huh,
1: Why? Yeah. yeah. So I, um, I was at NBC thinking my future was going to be in media. And I, got, I got, had been exposed to Jack Welch because we had done a lot of things like the, the announcement of Microsoft. I got to work with Jack Welch and Bill Gates. It was a pretty good introduction to him. And I got a call one day saying, hey, come up and see me. I went up to see him in the office at mm. GE and at NBC. And he said, I'd like you to come and work at GE. And he was in the early stages of his succession and was looking for someone to come in and lead communications and advertising. And he said, I'd like you to do it. And it was the farthest thing from my mind. I did not imagine my future at GE. And um, I don't really know why I said yes, to be honest, because one, I'd say Jack's a pretty persuasive, uh, makes a pretty persuasive offer. But I was curious about GE. It was a big platform. It was a big company. It was a way for me to learn um, and see, you know, kind of see a side of business that I hadn't seen through media. So I was just incredibly intrigued and curious. At the time, Jack wasn't the Jack Welch he became. Um, but it was, uh, it was an amazing time. It seemed like it would be an amazing time in the company and the, and the transition that was ahead. Um, and then I ended up having a great run and a great career there. And midway through, I went to GE, Jack re- retired, Jeff Immelt took over, um, and they shipped me back to NBC. And, um, at that time it was a pretty tough job. The digitization of media was happening. And, um, I got to know the team at Apple. I, we were working with them on some digital deals and they approached me about a job and one day I picked up my phone and it was like, hey, it's Steve Jobs. I know you've been talking to the team. I'd like you to come and work here. Um, you know, sort of reining it in at the end and I had said no to the job. It wasn't the right job for me and then a few months later he called me again and said, hey, there's this, this other job I was thinking about. Could you come out and we talk about it? And I did and um, I, he made it really intriguing Uh, At the same time, it just didn't seem like the right job for me. And Mm -hmm. so I ultimately called him up and said no. And I put it in the book because it's one of those moments where I knew I had a good reason for saying no. The strategy was sound. But I did regret it uh, at times. Um, He went on and Apple went on to be this incredible company. I sort of regretted the chance not to make myself better. And, of course, I regretted those stock options (laughs) that I never thought were going to go anywhere. Or at least were never going to go as big as they've gone. So...
0: Sort of coin a phrase, instead of buyer's remorse, we had decliners' remorse. Yeah,
1: well, it was, it was a mixed bag because I had all the reason to leave yeah. at that time because I was in a tough spot at NBC. It was a really tough job, but it just didn't seem like the right thing for me. Um, so I... Knew that, but there's also that those moments of those paths you take in your career, could have, should have, would have. And I frequently went back to that, yeah. especially when, you know, they had a tough time or uh, the Apple stock did really well. You're like, what, what, what was that? So, but I, again, I'd come back to say that wasn't the job that I, I really wanted to take.
0: Thank you, Annette. Beth, let's get to the heart of the book, which is the challenge of changing anything, especially yeah. for a century old company, an icon. Uh, Thomas Edison got it going uh, many years ago. It had an incredible run under Jack Welch. And when a company has a good run, uh, people are thinking, we got a great model. Don't follow it up. Yeah. Don't tell us to change anything, as we are doing extremely well now. And you write a length about the challenges of working with that kind of mindset, that culture, uh, to become more innovative, more adaptive, more digital. So just walk through a couple of the challenges that you faced, and then we'll talk about the, the, the motors of change. But let, let's talk about the barriers you ran into.
1: Well, I mean, for one, when I came into GE, uh, the performance culture was incredibly strong. And, you, you know, per, you need performance in any company. And that was very strong. I came in um, on the height of the sort of Six Sigma revolution um, that had really transformed the quality um, the 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 focus, everybody in GE had to do Six Sigma. I remember doing it at NBC going, what, why are we doing this? But everybody had to be immersed in And just in
0: remind it. us, Six Sigma?
1: Six Sigma was a quality program that basically was about eradicating defects in the manufacturing process. It became a bit of a management creed at GE at the time. And it had a lot of good with it, but I came into GE, as I was starting to grow in GE, Jeff Immelt took over, the world was changing dramatically. It was just after 9-11 happened. Growth was somewhat elusive in the future, and you had to go much more globally to find it. You had to go into new markets. And so in many ways, the growth that had to happen was was in areas we weren't that strong, where the old management principles of be number one or two, do it with precision— no longer worked in an area where maybe at best you'd be number 6 in a market if you wanted to enter it and so it was a time of kind of a renewed effort to grow from within to be much more global and and i was just at that time when the the sort of what got you there wasn't necessarily what was going to yeah. get you ahead
0: the problem we've always got is the uh, breaking the egg problem we we got to sort of break the egg then to cook the egg yeah. and um, how did you go about making the case that we've got to go, um, we've got to be more market focused? For example, we've got to be more digital. Yeah. Uh, GE, I think everybody knows now, is into three D, three D printing. Probably took a while for that to come in. So, uh, how, just talk about the the levers you use to get people to think about becoming more adaptive, more focused on the market?
1: Yeah, well, I think a lot of it started with vision. I mean, Jeff Immelt had, had taken over as CEO, and he was very much, I think, really as a CEO, tried to continue the core operations but also make room for the future and encourage people like me and the people, really, this market-back thinking. I mean, his vision was to come in. We're going to grow by being global, new technology, getting closer to customer. And so from a marketing perspective, he resurrected marketing. I was the first chief marketing officer in 20 years. It was about market-back innovation, mm. it became that. It was about seeing where change was happening, it was about going and understanding what problem are we trying to solve in the market. And so that was the journey that we went on and when you, when you say that marketing is about living in the market, suddenly you start to see the trends, you see the patterns, you see where clean tech is emerging, you see customers that want it. From there you see the digitization of media and the digitization of media leads you to the digitization of industry. So I think that was the fundamental shift that I was part of was that ability to kind of get outside the company, open it up um, to partners, to new, ways of, to new ways of seeing the world.
0: So here's a, a thesis implicit in what you've said. Uh, you write in the book that having worked with Jack Welsh, he didn't ask a whole lot of questions because he, quote, knew the answers, a person who was very confident about where he was going. Yeah. I infer, though, from what you've said that Jeff Immelt was a question asker. Number one. Number two, the driver for change, you were at the uh, the tip of that spear, but you did have level a top-level support coming from the office of the CEO. What yeah. do you think? Yeah, I mean,
1: and, and Jeff drove a lot of that, absolutely. Championship from Jeff for kind of fighting for the future. He believed in that. He put people like me in that role. Um, I'd say Jeff was somewhat conflicted. I mean, again, if you're a leader of a company, you have to do both of those things, right? The core performance engine, the quarterly earnings, the the reliability that you've somewhat vetted over a business model and incubate and push for the new. And so in some ways, I think even Jeff as a leader was somewhat, had to sort of balance that tension in his own head. And so, yes, he did ask new kinds of questions, but he also grew up in GE and had a lot of confidence in the systems he knew and I think all of us did that was some of the challenges we were trying yeah. to overcome I'll give you an example when we were in the clean tech space and trying to grow a new model of energy storage it was quite easy to say oh I know what you know from a lot of people this is exactly like how we used to run plastics so let's build a big factory build it and they will come it turned out to not be the right thing to do in the clean tech space what ended up would have been better for us would have been to have a small Test and learn, factory, get a good customer model, validate the business model, and then scale from there. We learn, but that's some of the tension that happens in companies. You take that, this is what I knew in the past, and you try to apply it to saying this is exactly the way we're going to make the future. And it didn't work. We had to write that business off.
0: Beth, you've got a five-factor framework for thinking about change. And I like the wording on one in particular, I like the wording on all five, but one in particular of the five Caught my attention, and you talk about agitated inquiry. So, just to bring that to life by maybe uh, an example, if I'm running uh, the division that creates or manufactures and sells medical equipment, and you come to me and you say, Look, uh, Mike, you got to get more into agitated inquiry, what does that mean? Well,
1: I think it's, it's two things. It's, it's really about getting a heated debate and discussion going, so the yeah. inquiry part. And the agitated is it's conflict, right? You don't, you don't always like people asking you, what problem are you trying to solve? Tell me something I don't want to hear. What's wrong with this? Let's yeah. beat this up. So it's this deliberate process of bringing in sparks from the outside who provoke and challenge and say, you know too much. You're not open to learn something new. Um, In the case of clean tech, a lot of people thought centralized energy generation from fossil fuels was the only way the future was going to unfold. We needed provocateurs from the outside to say, no, wind, solar, storage, these things are taking off. Here's why. So that's a bit of the agitated inquiry. You need to create what I call challenger brands. These are people that challenge the status quo. I mean, a lot of people call it challenger brands, but I like that idea. We did that at NBC with Hulu. The ability to say... We're going to bring a young Turk and Jason Kyler to seed and start Hulu and challenge the traditional way of doing television. Um, that is agitated inquiry. No one liked it, yeah. except maybe Jason and those of us who are trying to seed it.
0: Let's we'll spend a couple hours at Crotonville, the site of the famous training facility for GE. It goes back many, many years yeah. and has been a model for years for other companies on, on leadership and management development. And this issue, in particular, of agitated inquiry, if we go there, you've got a session on that for people who haven't encountered that phrase before. How would you get that across to people who are going to be kind of constitutionally skeptical? Yeah. So how do you teach it? I guess that's the question. Yeah.
1: Well, the first thing I would do is I would, um, I would set up kind of a, a, a debate. I'd go back to high school debate team. Uh, we called it red team, blue team. It's, you know, been documented out of military practices. We adopted that. I think this idea of just you're going to take the pro side, you're going to take the con side, and we're gonna, you're going to do your research, and often assigning people who had a point of view to take the opposite point of view. Hmm. We're going to facilitate that agitation. We're going to beat up the idea. Out of it's going to come some scenarios, a ha- optimistic, a positive, a medium, and a negative. And we're going to kind of debate those a bit. So you're creating a facilitated way for debate. I think the second thing is you'd ask people to ask different questions, uh, especially in the early stages of an idea. You can't ask when, it, when are you going to be profitable. You don't know. What's your hypothesis? That's a good starting point. What are you going to, When are you going to know if it's proven? So you're teaching people to ask different questions Um, You're teaching people to allocate budgets differently so they can carve off money to test and learn and experiment and make room to do some of these challenge efforts. So I think those are the things you would teach in a class, and you'd show them examples of where that's happened. But to me, the best thing is to put them in the situation where they have to do it.
0: Beth, when it comes to good ideas that seem to work really well in one company, sometimes they're exportable, sometimes they are not. Continuous improvement, Toyota mastered that many, many decades ago. Companies all all over the world now have learned how to be a continuous improver. Same for Six Sigma, developed elsewhere but adapted and adopted by GE and has worked very well. Uh, Do you think on this agitated inquiry and then there are four other pieces for the model that these can be thought about and maybe even applied or accepted and would they work well at other let's make it industrial firms, but maybe beyond industrial firms as well. Yeah, I like the
1: fact that you're raising it. I actually think that we do too much of that in business where we take a framework that's worked at some other company and try to apply it exactly. I, I... sort of came up with a framework as a prompt, as a series of prompts to say, here's some questions to ask yourself. Here's some ways to challenge your mindset, but you have to adapt it to the way you work. And we did that, and I, I, a lot of work I spent on what we called fastworks, which was adapting agile, lean startup to make the company more, at, more, more fast, more nimble, more adaptable. Um, you have to make it work for you. I think you have to use these as prompts. It's about critical thinking, right? It's about using your own judgment to say, this is going to work for us or not. I really caution against taking a blueprint that maybe worked at Nike and saying it's going to work for you because it's a very different company. The context is very different.
0: One more question on the five-factor model. Your fourth factor is storycraft. I like the phrase. Tell us how we would exercise storycraft.
1: Yeah, well, I think story is too often what business people think we do at the end. To me, it's where you start. Story is your strategy. Strategy is your story. It is can you tell your vision? Your vision, where are we going and why? Why is it relevant? Um, and I think that's, that's the simple message and too often we start with the logical outcomes, um, the financial outcome, and we forget that there's an emotional piece of it. There's an imagination piece that's about the vision and it's sort of weaving those pieces together to say, where are we going? Why does it matter to me? What's the, the promise and, and outcome I'm gonna get? Where are you coming from Mm -hmm. so that I have credibility that you're going to be able to do what you're saying? And I think anyone can master the art of story. It's kind of what makes us human. But um, we don't invest enough in it. So I'm trying to make a case for here's some some practices you can develop, simple questions. Maybe just uh, challenge people to say, what's your story? At an individual level, someone gets on an elevator with you, Mike, a Mm -hmm. student, and you go, what's your story? Uh, They probably freeze, right? Because we don't ask people that often enough.
0: Beth, I like your optimism about the human condition. If we think about storytelling or agitated questioning, we can become better at that. And now to turn that back on you and the account in the book, which is at many points very personal, you describe yourself uh, in your early years as an introvert. And in particular, just to pick up on one moment, you were called, just to bring out another facet, you were called into Jeff Immelt's office, the chief executive, and he said, Beth, I want you to be more confident. Um, you're no longer the introvert, if you ever were. Uh, you're probably much more confident in the way you work with the uh, managers. Uh, how did you become less introvertish and more confident in that public sense?
1: Well, I think confidence comes after kind of experience, for sure. The more, the more frankly, the more you try things and realize you can, you can actually do this. So it was a continual series of just trying things and seeing what worked and didn't builds confidence. and For me, I'm, I'm still an introvert. To me, it's that a sense of just needing to conserve energy, but I also was somewhat reserved and shy, and I realized that was standing in my way. I wasn't the one putting the ideas out forcefully. I wasn't asking questions. I missed opportunities to connect with people, and I realized it was getting in my way. So while introversion might be good, I might be a good observer and listener, it was also holding me back, so I had to fix that. I gave myself a series of small challenges, really behavior shifts, it's about I mean, I'm here in the land of Adam Grant, the the master of behavior science, but I think it's that kind of mindset shift. Give yourself the shift of mindset to just say, I'm going to take small, deliberate steps to make that happen. Um, And that's what I had to do, just say, I'm going to ask a question here. I'm going to go in and I'm going to participate in this meeting. I'm going to go meet somebody at this event, a networking event. And so when Jeff said, you need to be more confident, I wasn't wasn't showing up enough. Mm. I had to adapt that. I then had to next time show up in a meeting and make sure I had prepared a question, that I was able to challenge somebody who had a perspective that I might have a point of view on, and do it with my strength. Um, I wasn't going to go in and like rally about about gap accounting, because I didn't have expertise in gap accounting, but I knew insights, I knew where the market was going, I knew the customer, so I'd have to come back and have that point of view. that's, that's kind of builds confidence because you say, okay, I know these things, I can bring that forward.
0: Beth, the final question on this terrain before we move into a different direction: How do you know when you achieved what you wanted to achieve in pushing a company to be more market-driven, or more outside-in, or more innovative, or more digital? What would be a, a typical metric to know if an operation, a division, an office had moved in the right direction?
1: Well, I think customer satisfaction would have been one. Uh, I think share of wallet would have been another one where you're seeing same customers buy more from you because you're able to adapt and offer applications or products that they previously didn't know you understood that they wanted. Um, I think um, as we got more into innovation, new revenue from new sources would have been things you would have asked for. Um, I think think just the, the quicker speed to adoption of new products meant that they were simpler to use, the user experience was more clearly defined. I think just growth from new markets is another mm-hmm. metric that you were actually able to not just define a market opportunity, but start to recognize it. Yep.
0: Beth, let's uh, think about the company historically. You go back to Thomas Edison, your, your, your founding uh, inventor, and over the years, uh, GE has not had a whole lot of, the 100 years plus have not had a whole lot of chief executives, the famous Jack Welch, was in office for 20 years. Yeah. His successor, Jeff Immelt, I believe it was 17 yeah, years. Almost 17, yeah. uh, though recently, you brought in a new person, uh, uh, John uh, Flaherty, and he, I think, was there for less than 14 yeah. months. Going back to your phrase, what got you here won't necessarily get, get you there. there. Yeah. Uh, just to pick up now, and McCool's going to come in on this as well, uh, what do you think has helped uh, derail the, the innovativeness and the uh, success in the market that Jack, Jack Welch, who was, the, I think, the CEO of the decade at one point. I think the century. I re- of the I century, recall century, actually. I remember publicizing the, that
1: story. It was the century. guarantee oh, it was the CEO century. of the century. How <laughs>
0: about that? So that got him there, but the uh, successors have had more of a struggle. So what's going on, do you think?
1: Well, I guess at first I'd say um, I've worked at GE most of my career. It's a really good company and they are innovating. If I could take you today to Cincinnati, Ohio, where they're inventing the future of manufacturing in the aviation business through 3D printing and metals, they're totally transforming not just aviation, but manufacturing. The digitization of industry is happening, the clean energy revolution. Not all of them have scaled fast enough, big enough, still questions about it. So I think I would say there is still innovation alive there. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think you're seeing business at a crossroads through a lot of the the GE story in some ways. I mean, GE had a a big run up in scale, complexity, um, and trying to come up with new models and globalize the company from a market perspective, figure out new models that work. Obviously, conglomerates had fallen out of favor the need to reset and kind of shift gears with GE Capital, all that created a lot of complexity. And so I think that's what you've seen in some of, certainly the the stock market reaction, some of the, the challenges, just the depth of complexity. And so any leader today in big companies like that has to know how to navigate complexity. And I, I'm, I think it was perhaps even more complex than insiders and outsiders appreciated about the company.
2: So I'd like to come back to what you just said about yeah. the stock market in a bit, but... I was very fascinated by what you were saying about Jack Welch and also Jeff Immelt. Yeah. Uh, since you worked with both of yeah. them, I wonder if you could uh, speak to some. What were some of the differences between the two as leaders? Yeah. And and how did you view their strengths and weaknesses?
1: Yeah, it's a, I appreciate that question a lot. I mean, um, Jack was incredibly, um, you know, bold. Uh, Jeff was bold. They were both bold in in different ways. Um, Obviously, Jack really used financial services as a way to scale the company up, and um, and that was a model that worked until it didn't. The financial crisis called that into, into question. Jack was a really, he really believed in the investment in people, seeded a lot of the people development at GE. Um was very intense and focused. Um, But he was, at the time, think of the company at the time, it was a very hierarchical leadership. It was very much command and control because that's the the business world we lived in at the time. Jeff Immelt comes in really overnight. 9-11 happened and sort of called into question a lot about the global nature of the world. And I think Jeff was a much more market-focused, customer-focused CEO, much more... um, distributed in how he saw the networks and partnerships op- opportunities, and I think needed a more distributed leadership team um, to be able to do some of that. Um, but maybe the conglomerate structure was made it more difficult to do to do that. But um, both bold, both invested in people, but did it in very, very different ways.
2: Now, you, you referred to earlier the, the, the stock performance, and that, that may be one difference also yeah. that has been reported about in the media. Uh, I remember there was a story in Fortune some time ago that talked about the fact that if you look at the performance of the GE stock uh, during the 20 years that Jack Welch was the CEO, yeah. the stock went up by about 2,700 times and at the time when the S&P 500 went up 700 times. Yeah. And if you were to take the you know 17 years of Jeff mm-hmm. Immelt's tenure as CEO, the stock actually went down 30%. Uh, and, and so I wonder, what were some of the decisions that you as part of the leadership team made that led to GE losing about $150 billion uh, in, in market capitalization during the second phase?
1: Yeah, well, I think, um, I mean, I think if you were to take that um, arc and look back, I think the, the run-up that you talked about in the Welch era only happened in the last part of his tenure as well, right? There mm. was a lot of volatility very early in his in his run, you look even back into the 70s, very flat GE performance. So I think in the arc of a, of a company, you can't just look at one period of time. Right. Um, I don't know. You, could could you, you? You guys are the business school <laughs> <folk> <laughs> experts. I mean, there was a huge run up to scale. Is it possible to keep growing companies, hmm. uh, growth on growth uh, like that f- forever? Um, And so I think, um, as I said earlier, I think some of the issues with GE, conglomerate model that perhaps fell out of favor, um, looking at um, GE capital in a world that maybe that was not a competitive advantage anymore, those things had to be cleaned up. I ask a broader question uh, as I think about it from a business perspective. Do businesses at a certain size scale, do, do they get reset moments? Mm -hmm. Could GE have had a bigger reset moment? Maybe they're having one now that's overdue. Um, Would the public markets have let GE have a reset moment? Um, Should the leadership have taken a reset moment? To me, I ask more of those kind of questions. I certainly know in the generation of GE that I was part of, it was definitely a vigorous approach to grow, to find new growth. Um, to return to kind of some of the core basics of making, manufacturing, high-focused technology, to really simplify the, the portfolio. Um, I, I, that was seemingly what was needed at the time. History, I guess, will judge if those are the right things.
0: Beth, I've got a quick question on that before we leave it. Uh, you mentioned that uh, the era of the conglomerate is, is over, and there well, are very maybe few. Well, it may be
1: returning right now. Uh, right? And, and we'll see where, it,
0: where it's going on, that. But uh, two of the arguments that GE historically made about the value of the diversified set of companies who are under the same umbrella is, number one, it was a leadership engine. It could create talent the way that others couldn't, and it could assign talent across those divisions. It was like an internal labor market that was very well defined and very well controlled. Number two, um, divisions or companies, however you want to label the separate profit and loss centers, uh, sometimes in very different industries, would sometimes share their research, yeah. their ideas, or scientific innovations. Do you think that in the first two decades of this century that both of those became less of a competitive advantage? It helped define the Jack Welsh era, but in a reverse sense, kind of undermine the, the Jeff Immelt era. Yeah. What do you think?
1: Well, I certainly think the the scale and complexity made the, the Jeff Immelt era challenging. Yeah. Um, But I I, I was always a big fan of the centralized R&D in a focused way. I mean, I I, I actually, if anything, I think maybe we could have done more to tell the value of that from an investor perspective, because I saw it firsthand what would happen. Take 3D printing that we talked about earlier, the ability to seed it in an aviation business and then move it to power and move it to a rail business, it really was quite profound, and the speed and the the capabilities really, really did create a competitive advantage. I saw it, I know it, I believe it. It was the same on the market innovation I led. I think to the uh, to the other point about the the leadership factory. I think that works if the businesses are always going to be run the same way, but suddenly you're in a world where growth is in a different way. You're in different growth markets. The growth is not happening from the markets where you were before. What are your choices? You're going to keep acquiring the growth, which is not a sure thing, or you're going to try to grow in the markets where you already are, and it requires a different kind of mindset. Um, It's okay to say you're going to be one or two in a market. But what often happens is you narrow the opportunity of that market, and to grow, you might have to be number five, six, four, to get to number one, and that requires a different kind of management mindset. It's more of a growth leader kind of mindset, where you're seeding things, you're making a market, you don't have the certainty yet. It's more of a commercial kind of market. Um, That is how I would have seen that challenge, where maybe you needed different kind of management capabilities to meet the new challenge of a global marketplace.
2: Uh, just to pick up on what you said about uh, when you make acquisitions, it's not always a sure thing. Yeah. I mean, one, one thing that you know, struck me, uh, there's a reference to it in your book as well, when you talk about the energy industry, yeah. uh, is the 2015 of uh, Alstom, yeah. you know, the, the French uh, gas turbine company. Uh, I think it was acquired for $10 billion and Jeff Immelt and also John Flannery uh, played a very active role yeah. in the acquisition. Now, if you look back uh, about uh, at what has happened since uh, the acquisition was done, uh, I believe that in October there was a twenty three billion dollar write off uh, much of it attribu- attributable to the uh, uh, alstom acquisition. and I was wondering, what are some of the lessons that can be learned uh, to your earlier point that you know uh, Acquisitions are not always a short, yeah. Sure thing.
1: Well, I think um, the the lesson I take away from looking at the awesome situation, I was always so focused on the clean tech piece, and I remember in the early days, the investors didn't. They had no time for that. Our, our eco imagination effort seemed silly or frivolous. It seemed so small, yet. 15 years later, why aren't you bigger in solar? Why aren't you bigger in renewable energy? Uh, and in fact, that's been one of the criticisms. And so I think it's just always tension in getting that short and the long term right. And so, take you to what, to, to sort of remind everybody what happened, the decision was made after the financial crisis, the new regulatory environment, that GE Capital, just that business model no longer worked for GE. Get out of GE Capital. Yet from an investor and from a running the company perspective, that created a huge gap to fill in terms of earnings, um, cash, other things that needed to happen. So the quick answer to that is to shore up an installed base of energy products that are going to be more accretive in the the short term Mm -hmm. and gives a base while the long term is trying to catch up and gives a base for service and some of the digital things. So I think you could understand why that why that would be made. I mean, I think the debate for business schools and others would play that out. Would you have been better to take that money and invest in digitization and clean tech? Would you have been able to? Would the market have allowed you to do that? You know, you needed something that was going to be accretive uh, n- nearer term to earnings. So I think put yourself in that CEO's job. Um, not everybody in the company thought that was a good deal, but uh, you could also understand why you had to do it, right? And if you've got, if you're Jeff and you're John Flannery, you're trying to balance the near and the, you've got people like me going, yeah, more solar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but how do I make money doing that, right. right? And then you've got just this installed base that you know how you make money that can buy us some time while we figure this out. So I think you have to put yourself I, in their shoes somehow. I
2: can, I can understand based on everything you've yeah. said why it might have been so compelling to do it. What I'm trying to understand is why it didn't work and what lessons we can learn from that.
1: I, I mean, I don't, I, I think you're declaring it hasn't worked for, based on the point in time right now. I, I mean, they had to write off some of it. The valuation wasn't there. I haven't been in the company for you, so it's hard for me to say what the justification was for the, for the, the, for the write-off. Um, but I certainly know they felt the strategy was, ra- the rationale, um, I would say, from everything I understand from reading, again, I haven't been in the company, is, the market dynamic changed much faster. Um, the the rise of solar and some of the other factors have been much faster than a lot of people in traditional energy business anticipated. In some ways, I think that's what a lot of us are trying to rally for. You need to be in the market, understanding and adapting to the pace of change. So some of those models perhaps might have allowed for longer term for these things to play out, and yet the nature and pace of change is faster. That would be one, one answer.
0: Beth, to begin to bring it to a close, <clears throat> uh, John Flannery ran GE for a little more than a year, and now Larry Kulp, who had yep. been on the board, uh, who had himself earlier run as the CEO of another industrial firm that was somewhat diversified, not unlike GE, if uh, Larry called you in and said, uh, Beth, uh, you've written a whole book on the topic of how we get change going here at GE, uh, what would be, just looking back on your time at GE and what you've said in your book, what would be your most, hopefully, most value-adding advice to Larry Culp looking forward now? Uh, and he's looking forward, I'm sure, uh, in a, a, with enormous pressure to get it right in the pressure. months ahead.
1: Well, one, I, I actually think it's uh, I think it's probably a good thing that an outsider's coming in and bringing an outside in perspective. i'm I'm a big believer in bringing outside perspectives, and he's been on the board for a few months enough to have a little hint of inside insight. So I think I think bringing that outside perspective is helpful at this time. So I would encourage him to keep that fresh perspective. I would encourage him to like also like communicate one, what's your vision? We need to give him a little bit of time, but he's would but be pretty clear that he has a, a thesis and a vision for the company. Um, he's got to recognize there are some strengths in the company. I mean, gee, it's a really good company. It still makes things in the world that the world needs. You can't discount that there are good things about the company. What's his plan? The future of manufacturing, digitization, clean tech. And then what is the focus on... The near-term challenges, the cash that challenges that have to happen. Um, GE Capital, a lot was sold off, but you sell off the good stuff first. You don't get you, you're left with a lot of things that are harder to sell off. So, in some ways, the job is hard to clean up the things that needed that are an ongoing part of cleaning up. It's not like they, uh, they that I mean smart people tried to do that, so he's going to have to continue that path of simplification and figuring out what mm. what's going to make sense. so I think he's got to do both things shore up the now and continue to give us a vision for the future and there's a lot to work with
0: yeah, thank you on that. near the end of the book, you write that after twenty seven years of GE you might have stayed a little bit too long. I think many people feel that way if they about follow. me probably yeah, <laughs> yeah. and uh, in that regard though uh, Passing up Apple along the way, but giving a lot of thought to that. What's next? Building on what you know, what you've done, what you've said in the book.
1: Yeah, well, I um, one, I've been focused this year on getting the book out. I, I wrote it for a couple of reasons. One, I wanted to chronicle kind of the innovation, mm. the, the innovator's journey in a big company. It's not easy. I wanted to chronicle the struggle. I feel people at mid to early career need some encouragement, so I wanted to do that. So I feel like I've accomplished that this year. And I'm gonna re-enter business in a much different way. I'm gonna try to take some advice in my book. I'm gonna get out, I'm gonna give myself permission to try new things, discover, mm. figure out what my story is, probably beat some ideas, be beaten up in the process, but I I have a I like to begin again, so I'm going to be looking for places where I can come in and kind of start over again in a business context.
0: Beth, thank you, Annette. Beth Comstock, thank you for joining Knowledge at Wharton today. Thank you
1: all very much. Thanks, Thanks for the thank opportunity. Thank you for, thank Thanks. You for thank coming. You very much. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. For more insight from
0: Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.